Thanks for tuning in. I'm Scott Walter. And I'm Michael Watson. In this episode, we examine American politics' biggest big donor battle, the right-leaning industrialist Koch brothers versus left-wing financier George Soros. This is the Influence Watch podcast. Last week, the Koch Seminar Network, a gathering of center-right donors convened by billionaire industrialists Charles and David Koch, held its annual winter meeting. The network, which is associated with a number of nonprofit organizations like Freedom Partners Chamber of Commerce, Americans for Prosperity, and the Libre Initiative, vowed to spend up to $400 million supporting free market-oriented candidates in November's midterm elections. Opposing the Koch Seminar Network are the Democracy Alliance and its most prominent member, left-wing billionaire George Soros. And while Soros does contribute to liberal super PACs and 501c4 advocacy groups, Soros's most prominent plays are in seeding foundations, which will fund liberal policy research, political organizing, and voter registration for decades to come. Last year, Soros announced that he was transferring a staggering $18 billion of his personal wealth into his principal philanthropic vehicle known as the Open Society Foundations. These differences in strategy lie alongside these two totemic vote donors' differences in ideology, and they raise a question. Whose strategy will prove more effective, and what effect will that have on the future of politics and American life? Now, uh, Mike, would you start us off with a little background on the two sides of this great battle, the Kochs and Soros? So let's start with, uh, with Mr. Soros. Uh, he's 87. He was born in Hungary in the 1920s. He fled Hungary when it was occupied by Nazi Germany in 1944, uh, fled to the United Kingdom, later immigrated to the United States. Over that time, he developed some theories of the financial markets, and he parlayed them into a, uh, one of the most successful careers as a hedge fund manager of all time. Um, now, he's most famous for one particular uh, successful play in finance markets. Tell us about that. So in 1992, uh, Great Britain was part of something called the European Exchange Rate Mechanism, which was a system of fixed exchange rates that, predated the, that pre preceded the euro, in which all the European countries, including Great Britain, uh, had their exchange rates pegged to the Deutsche Mark at a certain, the, the German mark at a, at, a, at a fixed rate. Now, one of the issues with the fixed exchange rate is if, a, um, if currency traders test the government's willingness to do what is necessary to maintain that exchange rate peg, if the government cannot maintain the exchange rate peg, it can cause you know, some serious financial disruption. Uh, most in the value of in the, the currency, in, in the value of the currency, mm -hmm. and also in the broader economy. This, the one of the worst financial crises um, in the Western Hemisphere in recent years was when Argentina, which had a currency pegged to the U.S. dollar, uh, came under speculative pressure in the late 1990s because it couldn't service its national debt. That started a massive recession. But in Great Britain in 1992. They're trying to maintain this exchange rate peg as part of the exchange rate mechanism. Soros leads a speculative uh, attack on that exchange rate on that exchange rate peg. Uh, 
and he ultimately made a he ultimately bet right. Uh, he bet that the government could not maintain the peg uh, the, on uh, under his speculative uh, speculative moves on what became known as Black Wednesday. The government was not able to maintain the peg, and the government had to withdraw from the exchange rate mechanism. Now that had a lot of far-reaching uh, consequences, didn't it? The it, it's a classic, you know, the best laid plans of mice and men uh, deal. Um, Soros is, of course, uh, the the British pronunciation of George Soros's name is Soros, and I jump between both, so I apologize to our listeners. Um, Soros is well known as a as a liberal internationalist, uh, somebody who believes in the power of international institutions uh, above national governments to uh, bring peace, bring uh, an open economy, bring open movement of people. So he's a he's a pretty big fan of the European Union. Um, however, his famous trade may have set off in a kind of butterfly effect a series of uh, a series of political decisions that ultimately culminated in Brexit. Uh, the ha- forcing Britain out of the European exchange rate mechanism let, created a situation where Gordon Brown, the Labour Prime Minister under Tony Blair, the Labour Finance Minister, later Prime Minister under Tony Blair, was able to keep Great Britain out of the euro. Britain stayed out of the euro. That drove Britain, which had never been terribly close to the Franco-German axis that really controls the European Union, uh, drove Britain even farther away, even further outside the, the sort of core of the EU. And then after the disruptions of the migration crisis, after the disruptions of the 2008 financial crisis, Britain was in a position where that former Prime Minister David Cameron could go to the people and say, you know, we should have, even though Cameron didn't support leaving the European Union, he he said, I promised you a referendum, I will give it to you. Um, And without the disruption that would have been caused by having to leave the European Union and reissue a new pound, the decision to leave, which since the referendum has been very tricky, uh, the British government and the European Union have not proceeded as far as certainly they the the Brexiteers would would like in the act of actually exiting the European Union. Um, but the fact that they didn't have to reissue a pound, the fact that they didn't have to redenominate all financial transactions, and the fact that Britain always had its monetary sovereignty made the rupture of Brexit less severe. So the great internationalist uh, quite possibly contributed to one of the largest uh, nationalist occurrences in Europe in the last uh, couple of decades. Well, we, we, we never, you know, we make all these great plans and history has a way of throwing them into, throwing them into the briar patch. <laughs> now, the, Britain was by no means the only place where uh, Soros's currency trading uh, caused him to be less than popular because, of course, people in England weren't thrilled to have the pound broken uh, back in 92. Uh, in France, uh, I know uh, they got quite angry with him for his currency trading uh, with the franc and uh, convicted him uh, of a serious crime related to it that back in 2006, uh, France's highest court uh, upheld the conviction. 
um, for that. Although, admittedly, when governments go after you because you've made them look bad, there's probably a bit of blame to go around in all on all sides. But uh, uh, given the French government and its uh, own uh, management of its economy. But let's move to the philanthropy side of uh, Soros's empire. Um, the, he has quite a number of, even just on the, uh, the money-giving side of things, multiple uh, groups and also some name changes over the years that makes it a little tricky, usually open society figures in them yeah, somewhere. He's a, he's a big fan. Uh, George Soros is a big fan of a, uh, of a philosopher of science named Karl Popper. And Popper's book, one of Popper's books, was The Open Society and Its Enemies. So he's named all his principal philanthropic organs, which are the Open Society Foundations, the Foundation to Promote Open Society. Open Society Foundations is an operating foundation that has uh, not just grant making, but also um, direct charitable activity. Foundation to Promote Open Society is a private grant making only foundation, non-operating foundation. Uh, and then he also has the Open Society Policy Center, which is a lobbying group. Uh, a very big lobbying group as of the uh, Senate lobbying disclosures for uh, the last quarter. It was $10.3 million in the fourth quarter of 2017 alone, which made it, I believe Politico had it at number four among all lobbying spenders. Yeah, the if fourth largest lobbying spender for the last uh, part of the year. And as some observers pointed out, uh, that was also a time when net neutrality was one of the most uh, debated and lobbied topics uh, in the nation's capital, and the now they weren't. That's not what Soros's people yeah, the, were. Yeah, the were Open Society on. Policy Center was lobbying mostly on foreign policy matters, uh, trying to take away the president's. Uh, there are a couple of bills flying around that would uh, that are being advanced by uh, opposition Democrats to take away some of the president's discretionary national security authority. Yes. Uh, specifically as it applies to North Korea. Um, and Open Society was lobbying for those those bills that would restrict the president's ability to act. Yep. But, to, but to keep the, uh, the magnitude um, uh, clear, to be number four among all lobbying groups at that time, uh, that meant that Soros's lobbyists uh, were expending more money than, I believe it was Google and Microsoft, uh, oh wait, Google and... Do you remember? Uh, well, I don't know. All, all the top the top corporate lobbyists playing in, on net neutrality at the same time spent less money on net neutrality than uh, Soros's people spent I mean, on his foreign policy. I mean, what, what struck what struck me is that uh, Open Society Policy Center spent more money than pharma, the the pharmaceutical manufacturers lobby, and we we, we discussed last week on our with our discussion of the opioid crisis. Uh, Open Society Policy Center spent more money than pharma in the fourth quarter of 2017. Yeah, and pharma is historically one of the largest lobbying groups of all time. Yes, exactly. So well now, uh, uh, just a few months ago, Soros uh, handed over, uh, possibly because he's 87, handed over $18 billion additional dollars to his grant-making institutions. Um, prior to that, he had contributed uh, on the order of uh, $12 billion, I believe it is, um, to those philanthropies. Uh, he's now left with a mere $8 billion uh, for his personal estate. A mere $8 billion, darn. <laughs> um, well, let's switch over to uh, the brothers, who are the most famous uh, money men on the other side of these great political battles. That would be Charles and David Koch. What can you tell us about them? 
So the Koch family, uh, both both uh, Charles and David made their money the old-fashioned way, uh, or at least made some of their money the old-fashioned way. Uh, their father, Fred, who was also a, a right-wing activist, um, formed a chemical manufacturing company, Koch Industries. Uh, when he died, he passed it on to his sons, uh, of whom Charles and David are the most prominent and who control um, who control the company. Um, Charles is 82. David is, eight, is 77, so they're a little bit younger than Soros, but they're both also pretty old. Um, together, uh, they have established a number of uh, center-right um, think tanks and policy research organizations. More, it, it's important to place the Charles and David Koch ideologically precisely. Uh, there is a tendency, especially among the left, to say that they're just the crazy right-wingers and whatever the Republican Party does is because Charles and David Koch told them to. Um, as a libertarian, if that were true, I would be a lot happier with the state of American politics um, because Charles and David Koch are uh, more to the libertarian side, uh, more to the classically liberal uh, free market side than the national conservative uh, thrown an altar side uh, of the center, of the kind of broader center-right. In fact, and that's precisely why in the last electoral cycle, they ramped down all of this political spending and the rest because uh, they were not happy with the choice of Donald Trump as the Republican nominee for president because he was insufficiently libertarian for their tastes. Uh, and so they did not really play uh, a big role in the presidential race last no, time at they, all. They, play, they officially stood down from the presidential race. They supported free market Republican, more free market Republicans who were running in state and local races. Um, I want to say they supported Pat Toomey's reelection for U.S. Senate in Pennsylvania. Um, also Ron Johnson's reelection for U.S. Senate in Wisconsin. But no, they did not provide the sort of scale of support uh, for President Trump, who is kind of all the way over on the national conservative side of the of the right of the right spectrum. Yeah. Um, and one thing worth noting on this score is that the depth of their uh, of their devotion to libertarian causes is sufficiently great that David Koch in 1970 actually ran 1980. on or sorry 1980 ran on the libertarian party ticket uh, as the vice presidential candidate. Yeah, he was he was the the running mate for uh, I think it was Ed Clark, another longtime libertarian activist, uh, in in 1980, uh, and actually until this last election, when a lot of people who uh, more sympathized maybe with the libertarian side of the right uh, defected from the Republicans uh, and supported former New Mexico Governor Gary Johnson and former uh, Massachusetts Governor Bill Weld's campaign for president, uh, they actually had the highest percentage. Uh, Clark and Koch had the highest percentage for libertarian. Um, uh, in the history of the Libertarian Party until 2016, uh, with about one percent, yep. uh, which was not enough to stop the election of Ronald Reagan. So yes. just as just as uh, Gary Johnson's three and a quarter was not enough to stop the election of Donald Trump. Yes, very. Third parties uh, cannot always uh, bump out their their intended targets. Um, well, we've mentioned uh, earlier the Koch Seminar Network, which is uh, the Koch's gathering. Uh, like-minded donors to try to pool their efforts. That would be the opposite of the Democracy Alliance, which is all, which is uh, Soros and his friends' efforts to gather uh, left-of-center donors together. Um, but let's talk a, a bit about the the uh, 501c3 grantees of uh, on the Koch side. 
some of the names that would be familiar, some of the influencers that would be familiar to our listeners and can be looked up on influencewatch.org, uh, our website would be? So the, uh, the Kochs actually sat on the board of the Cato Institute for a very long time. Uh, the libertarian, leading the libertarian liber- liber- think the, tank. The principal libertarian, capital L libertarian think tank. Uh, and also have uh, served on the boards and contributed a lot of money to the Mercatus Center, which is a uh, economic and policy research uh, organization uh, associated with George Mason University, uh, which is the sort of home for a lot of libertarian economists. Uh, Brian Kaplan, I, rem- I remember who we mentioned in our uh, podcast a couple weeks ago on immigration. That's where he resides. Uh, and then also the Reason Foundation, which publishes Reason Magazine, which is one of the leading sort of journals of libertarian thought and uh, libertarian news, um, in addition to conducting policy research. Exactly. Well, uh, let's switch over now to uh, the primary philanthropic uh, vehicles that George Soros has used. Uh, we mentioned that the Open Society Foundations is the current name of the leading a vehicle that he has that was formerly called the Open Society Institute. Uh, tell us a bit more about that. So uh, the Open Society Foundations, form, again, formerly the Open Society Institute, is a grant-making and also operating foundation, which means it has some direct, uh, a certain percentage of direct charitable activity. Scott, you probably know better the di- better the distinction between a non-operating and an operating foundation than I would. Yeah, let's well let's just clear that up for readers for a second because that it, it is worth noting that those those are the technical legal terms in the tax code. An operating foundation actually operates stuff. The easiest way to think of this is it's not unusual for something like a zoo or a um, uh, a zoo or a museum to have an operating foundation that spends most of its money actually making uh, function whatever that charitable activity is, and that's an operating foundation. Then a non-operating foundation basically just gives its money away to, uh, to groups that it's not very much in control of or, or, or you know, intimately running day to day, and that's, that's what most people think of, a private non-operating foundation. That's what people think of when they hear foundation, when they're thinking of the Ford Foundation or the MacArthur Foundation, the, big, the Hewlett Foundation. Those are all private non-operating foundations that basically sit and write checks. So, so the Open Society, so Open Society Foundations, the operating foundation, they plan to make $100 million of grants and also direct charitable activities in the United States in 2017, according to, the, according to their budgetary documents. Um, and it, the uh, OSF, the Open Society Foundations, is going to be the recipient of that $18 billion in additional contributions uh, that uh, George Soros announced uh, late last year uh, from his personal wealth. Yes, and then then there's the foundation to promote open society, which is another Soros vehicle. That is the non-operating foundation, the the check writing side, uh, the principal check writing side, at least historically, in uh, in the George Soros philanthropies. Um, in 2015, the latest year for which I could find a, uh, a tax return, uh, they paid 485 million dollars in grants to various liberal organizations, universities some charitable causes, Uh, and obviously both the Open Society philanthropies, both OSF and the Foundation to Promote Open Society, are substantial funders of all the, uh, of a lot of the left-wing, left-wing organizations that we discuss. Yep. I have to say in a couple of decades of studying all this, uh, I don't believe I have ever found 
uh, a left-wing activist group of any significance that did not receive money both from uh, one of the Open Society uh, philanthropies uh, and the Ford Foundation. They really, those two are the leading left-wing donors. That, that's true. I can think of kind of one, ex- I can think of one issue area exception. What's that? Uh, George Soros does not support boycott and divestment and sanctions against Israel, even though he doesn't like the Israeli government. Ah, well. uh, in fact, in fact, hilariously, boycott, divestment, and sanctions. A couple years ago, he invested money in so does he invested through his uh, his for profit personal uh, money making and enterprises in SodaStream, which is an Israeli company. Uh, so boycott, divestment, and sanctions actually tried to boycott, divest, and sanction him. Ah, well, that, that, that's what he gets for not giving them money. Um, now, there's one more, uh, one or two more important Soros uh, vehicles we should deal with. One is that, uh, that 501c4 you mentioned, that the Open Society Policy Center. Right. Uh, that is the lobbying, the lobbying arm of the Open Society philanthropies. And as we discussed, they spent a staggering amount of money uh, in the last quarter, lobbying on these foreign policy bills. Uh, again, they were bigger than pharma. They were bigger than a lot of the uh, corporations that were lo- that were involved in uh, a lot of the issues that we've been we've been discussing in some of our back episodes. Net neutrality, um, to the to the point that again, they were the only ones that were bigger were like the Chamber of Commerce, and that was the only one I remember. Like nope. They were bigger. They were bigger than pharma. Which yep. Uh, and then there's one more uh, Soros vehicle that I think is worth uh, a brief mention because it's in a, it's um, I think of it as kind of a uh, Don Quixote like effort. But uh, the Institute for New Economic Thinking. Tell us about that. Soros has never liked the sort of quote unquote orthodox way of doing and teaching economics. Uh, because it presupposes human rationality. He has this theory of reflexivity, which I don't, uh, I'm not competent to describe. Um, So he has created this Institute for New Economic Thinking to promote uh, his his uh, left-wing anti-rationalism, anti-rationalism is probably not a fair way to describe it, but... Uh, economic thought that does not rely on uh, the assumption of a rational actor. He's got, you know, I think Joseph Stiglitz is one of the most prominent left-wing economists, I believe is associated with it, but don't quote me on that. Um, And he founded it after the financial, after the 2008 financial crisis. And they've, they hold conferences, they try, they're they're trying to um, get new economics curricula that, uh, kind of reject the sort of Milton Friedman, Chicago school, uh, traditional, more right-of-center way of thinking and uh, approaching economics as a discipline. Yeah, so or another way to put that, I guess, would be that the, the standard idea of most economists is that uh, human beings will be, most of the time, reasonably rational, about reasonably their, rational and reasonably self-interested. Yeah, and exactly that that, that they'll the ordinary person is smart enough, rational enough uh, to be able to make uh, fairly good choices uh, about his economic uh, life. And it's an intriguing thing in a way. Uh, to me, it's a it's a little scary personally if you think that most people 
out there who are not billionaire financiers can't really be trusted to make uh, economic decisions in their own best interest. And that they, and that they move, and, I, and I, I believe, if I'm remembering a few things I've watched in, in my life correctly, that it, you know, it's based on hurt mentality. You know, his theories are based on hurt mentality. They're based on, um, you know, kind of theories of panic. Uh, you know, it's hard to, it's hard to, you know, know. I mean, if you if you asked a a conventional economy, you know, if you asked, we can't ask Milton Friedman because he died in two thousand three. Um, you know, if you asked the chairman of President Trump's Council on Economic Advisors, I think it's a guy, I think it's Kevin Hassett. I think he got confirmed. Yep, from formerly at AEI. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, if you asked him, are human beings perfectly rational, he would say no, even though most economic models assume for the sake of argument that they are. Um, so, and how you, one of the great questions in economics as a discipline, and that also leaks into economic policymaking, is to what extent does the fact that we know that that assumption doesn't necessarily hold in reality, how does that affect the policies and the, um, and even then, and then there's the philosophical question of even if, okay, even if, uh, you know, we know people can't be perfectly rational and we know that people can't even be sufficiently rational that that's a, a good analog, is it too much of an infringement on personal on personal freedom and personal autonomy here you get into questions of like nudge theory of former obama administration official Cass sunstein uh which is well beyond the scope of this discussion <laughs> yes but the well i I, th- I guess what i would say is that um I, I two thoughts that the 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 folks who who uh prefer markets to uh an international uh leadership class let us say uh euphemistically, um, is that uh, at least the market has mechanisms where when you are irrational, foolish, economically speaking, you will have received disincentives for being that way. Conversely, when people are reasonably uh, sensible about their economic choices, they'll be rewarded. So it's not that that uh, a society that's mostly market-based is going to be perfect with everyone rational every time, but it's going to have mechanisms that encourage sensibleness and discourage foolishness, whereas— And there's also, and there's also the issue that, you know, government actors all have the same cognitive biases as any other human. And you end up with, you know, when you have— the, the central planning you have the fatal you know you have what Hayek called the fatal conceit the belief that you can con- the belief that you can control the belief that you see everything when in fact you don't yes so of of the two uh, I think I'd rather trust most people most of the time than a very tiny elite all of the time I, th- I think I think the relative success of the Western world whether it's more social democratic or more uh, open market versus the command economies, of the Soviet Union, which no longer exists, and Eastern Europe, and you know the German. I mean, look at a a, a real world example in a you know strong, uh, you know industrialized nation in in Germany. You had the more market oriented West Germany and the and the uh, state controlled, state planned East Germany. Even today, you can see the difference between the damage that was done by the communist East Germans versus the prosperity that was brought by the market-oriented West Germans. Yes, and of course, in the old, as they say, voting with your feet issue, those ordinary people who were not trusted by Mr. Soros 
voted with their feet by desperately trying, sometimes being shot for the effort, to get out of uh, the socialist side and into the market side, just like today we see in North and South Korea. Uh, they have, just like the Germany, the same ethnic group, the same culture uh, traditionally, but one has markets and one has dear leader. But uh, well, let's switch over now to the, uh, to the Cokes uh, and some of their primary vehicles. Uh, first, there's the Freedom Partners Chamber of Commerce, which is a 501c6, uh, also in the tax-exempt yeah, world. It's a business, it's a, a, a business league, uh, an association of, of business, of corporations and businessmen. Uh, and unlike, uh, you know, again, the most famous 501c6, the most notable is the United States Chamber of Commerce, which ostensibly represents sort of all of the business community. Uh, Freedom Partners represents the businessmen who align with uh, the Koch's general view of the world. Then um, there's also a C4 uh, in the Koch's world. The 501c4 arm that uh, does a, a great deal uh, of the sort of political independent expenditures is Americans for Prosperity. Uh, it is, uh, you know, the... The, the left obviously believes this is the core of the grand conspiracy. <laughs> um, it is. It's an advocacy group, not unlike, um, not unlike those like those on the left. Uh, what's interesting about Americans for Prosperity compared to other uh, many other conservative or center right leaning uh, advocacy groups is, in addition to the sort of TV ad independent expenditure stuff, they also have constructed a permanent grassroots infrastructure. Obviously, the left gets a lot of its permanent grassroots infrastructure from the labor unions. Uh, the right does not have, or historically has not had, a permanent grassroots infrastructure of people to knock on doors and register voters and, you know, come election time say, hey, are you going to go vote for the conservative candidate as opposed to the, the liberal candidate? Um, which makes it an interesting piece of the sort of center-right political machine. Yes, and I, I want to interject here that uh, one reason that the Kochs uh, had to build this independent uh, political operation, um, just as, as you note, the, the, the other side of the spectrum has the labor union um, outside the party thing, is precisely one of the left's uh, uh, greatest victories, quote-unquote, um, and that is all the campaign, campaign finance, finance reforms. reforms. Campaign finance reforms essentially hamstring uh, our two main political parties. If they you want to, if you want to know why political, you know, if if you look at the rest of the world and what political parties do in the rest of the world, they pick candidates, they knock, you know, they organize all the all the volunteers to go knock on doors, they, uh, you know, they do all the canvassing. If you want to know why, you know, the Republican Party of Minnesota versus the Democratic Farmer Labor Party of Minnesota aren't doing that. And instead you have guys from the SEIU and guys from, from Americans for Prosperity. It's because in 2002, uh, John McCain and Russ Feingold, in their infinite wisdom, passed a bill that said that they can't do that. <laughs> yes, so the, the left screamed, the, 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 the Americans for Prosperity, as we said, is a C4. And C4s are the main kind of exempt group, independent group, that the left screams about as being evil dark money groups, although the left has just as many C4s uh, as the right. But anyway, uh, the so-called dark money groups 
um, are prominent precisely because the money has, has to go there rather than the political parties because of all the ways that political parties can't coordinate with their own candidates, can't have unrestricted donations, et cetera, et cetera. So, and, and, and I'll make a mention here that that kind of really took off after the 2010 Citizens United decision, which, which threw out parts of that campaign finance reform law and basically said that as long as you're not coordinating with the candidate, as long as I don't pick up the phone and call uh, you know, Josh Hawley's campaign manager and say, you know, hey, what, what's our message this week? Hey, what's our polling look like? And get secret information from him. Uh, if I'm Americans for Prosperity, I can go out, I can hire canvassers, I can, uh, you know, I can send them out to knock doors, I can put television ads up for, for my candidate. Um, what the Supreme Court held is that when I, as an independent entity, with some limitations because of tax law, uh, if I, as an independent entity, say, you know, this candidate's really great, vote for him, or this candidate's really terrible, don't vote for him, uh, that that's my freedom of speech. Yep. Now, that's the C4 world on the Koch side. The Kochs also have uh, a number of 501c3s. Uh, that are active uh, on public policy issues uh, and are uh, created along particular axes of, of um, uh, constituencies. Tell us a bit about those. Some of them are, I'll, a slight corrective, some of them are C-Force. Some of okay. the constituency advocacy groups are C-Force. Uh, there's Concerned Veterans for America, which uh, advocate, which is a, you know, a voice for free market right-leaning veterans. Uh, Generation Opportunity, which has tried to spread free market ideas to uh, to younger Americans, and then the Libre Initiative, which is a kind of a two-pronged uh, approach. Uh, in addition to the straightforward, you know, trying to spread free market ideas to uh, Latin American immigrant communities, uh, also does some of the community building work uh, to help those communities have a positive image of the then subsequent any political persuasion that then that then comes. Uh, the labor unions are very, very good at this. Uh, so the idea that that a political organization or a politically motivated organization would engage in community building as preparation for later uh, political persuasion is not a new thing. And when the left comes out and is, you know, obviously horrified by it, they're horrified because they know it works. Yeah, excellent point. Um, always, 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 we should never forget that labor unions are not primarily economic actors. They are primarily political actors. Uh, and the left and the Democratic Party uh, would collapse tomorrow uh, if the unions disappeared. Um, in, in, in one large-scale uh, study of about eight consecutive political cycles in America, uh, done by a group we're about to say more about, the Center for Responsive Politics, which is by no means a conservative group. It's a left-wing group. Um, they did this, this study, and over all of those eight political cycles uh, stuck together, they found that seven of the top ten political donors in America were labor unions. So it, they are the 800-pound gorilla, and uh, sadly, the conservatives um, uh, are often not very smart about keeping that in mind. But let's, uh, let's pull back here for a second and think about uh, the Kochs versus Soros uh, in, the, in the highest strategic terms. One obvious distinction 
that would appear to be the case uh, distinguishing the two groups would be that uh, Soros appears to be a much bigger investor in the C3 world, which would be, and by the way, that's both the foundations and the activist groups, because they're both legally C3s for the most part, um, whereas uh, on the Koch side, it would seem that more money is invested through the C4 stream. Now, a slight, you know, a, a slight clarification. The Kochs together probably, all told, contribute more dollars to C3s, uh, certainly if you include any of, any of their charitable giving. They absolutely do. Um, you mean purely charitable pure, as purely opposed to public the, policy? One of, one of my favorite, uh, favorite things in Washington is the David H. Koch Hall of Human Origins at the Smithsonian Museum of National, Natural History, uh, which must give uh, left-wingers who are very pro-science and very, yes, we believe in, we believe in, 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 in scientific uh, surveys of the origins of man, and they're being presented to us by the horrible, evil, you know, David Koch. This doesn't make any sense. Um, yes, Koch's, uh, David Koch's also a, a very large uh, supporter of the New York Ballet and the um, uh, public broadcasting system. Also, the hospitals in New York, which got the hospital protested by, I want to say it was 1199 SCIU, mm. either them or the National Nurses United, uh, when he gave them, he gave one of the hospitals in New York like $10 million, and they wanted, the, the unions wanted the hospital to refuse it. <laughs> yes, the, the uh, hospital declined, oddly uh, enough. Uh, but lay, you know, laying that aside, uh, they, it, it's probable that they, that they give and have given more to uh, to C3s than C4s. What is different is that the C4s proportion is higher. And what's interesting is that uh, we've done a bit of, for, of research that'll be that'll be forthcoming in the next couple of months, uh, if I can te- if I may tease you it. You certainly may. Uh, and it and what we found was that the C3 advocacy group, uh, which includes you know your environmentalist groups, your conservative think tanks, your left wing your uh, left wing think tanks, your uh, you know voter registration and civil rights groups, your you know all those public policy interested five hundred one c threes public policy interested charities uh, that the liberal center left left wing universe of five hundred one c threes is substantially larger than the center-right universe of 501c3s. And that pertains regardless of the size of the 501c4 social welfare advocacy independent expenditure groups, which are a little bit bigger on the right. Yes. Well, the um, one study, uh, it's now uh, a bit old. It was done in 2010, but by that uh, left-wing group I mentioned, the Center for Responsive Politics, which is most famous for its website, OpenSecrets.org, which is an excellent source uh, for data on political giving of various types. Um, they were inspired back in 2010 to do a deep dive into trying to compare the Koch's uh, political giving in the broadest sense to George Soros's political giving in the broadest sense. And uh, they basically said it's a toss-up. They noted this difference that there is certainly yeah, some they, difference they, they in strategy. Yeah, they noted these differences. At that, at that time, Soros had given more 
than the Kochs to 527 organizations, which are directly political, uh, political action committees, uh, candidates' campaigns, that sort of thing. Um, they noted that it's really impossible to tell uh, who gives more to the C groups. Uh, it is const- your constitutional right uh, to give an- anonymous contributions to a 501C group. Um, and again, our, our ability to track, and that's kind of why some of this discussion comes with an asterisk, because George Soros is relatively easy to track much of his contributions because he has these giant foundations that are required to disclose their grant making on their federal tax returns. The the Kochs, for the understandable reason that they don't want, uh, you know, all the liberal left-wing crazy crazy nutcase guys who protest your, you know, who protest your house and your friend and the hospital that you gave money to, uh, have a tendency uh, to operate more privately without the intermediary of a, of a foundation, although they have foundations. Yes. Now, there's a, uh, a, a classic case of uh, influence here. We should note that the Center for Responsive Politics that we've been discussing uh, has itself received hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars from Soros Philanthropies. And now, if you go and look up on their website, that fascinating uh, deep dive comparison of the Kochs versus Soros, uh, you find that it has essentially a big red box on it, uh, warning that uh, the Kochs actually really are uh, bigger ones. And you have to wonder if they got a nasty gram uh, from one of their donors, perhaps. Which would, which, would, which would be a shame, because Open Secrets is a wonderful resource, but obviously, given their funding, uh, you can guess their editorial persuasion. Yes. Now, uh, there's another thing to say about that, that uh, deep dive, uh, very thorough comparison that they did. The Center for Responsive Politics created that report precisely because a certain left-wing journalist, Jane Meyer, writing uh, for her usual outlet, The New Yorker, had done a very big hit piece on the Koch brothers and their political giving. Uh, And in response, Center for Responsive Politics, which Ms. Meyer often cites in her own work, uh, did that deep dive and said, eh, well, you know, basically the Soros is is about as big as uh, the Kochs uh, in giving. Now, of course, Ms. Meyer, in her hit piece on the Kochs, had been very careful not to say anything about that, even though a few years prior she'd written a long piece on George Soros that was, of course, highly sympathetic, in fact, mocked the idea that billionaires could ever uh, turn elections, even though, of course, that became the thesis of her hit piece on the Kochs. And then I should add, because I have a uh, Ms. Meyer something of a bete noir for me, um, having watched her uh, career over the years, uh, that hit piece on the Kochs in The New Yorker uh, some years later came back and was built into an entire book attacking the Kochs and other conservative donors uh, that was uh, released in 2016. And in that book, of course, she remains silent on the fact that, eh, really, Soros and the Kochs about the same size uh, in, in terms of uh, their political weight. Uh, she completely ignores that, but then she also completely ignores other devastating rebuttals to other articles that she did uh, in The New Yorker that also were uh, recycled into this book. If I may, if I may make one brief disclosure, uh, 
in the, in the interests of trans in the interests of transparency, uh, the Capital Research Center has taken uh, my understanding is it's a small amount of money from. Uh, yes. From philanthropies and entities associated with Charles and David Koch. Yes, we, we have. We I, you're, you, thank you for reminding me. We have always made the point that uh, that over the years there have been some Koch entities that have uh, that have funded us. In no year has it ever approached anything like ten percent of our funding. Uh, though obviously, if uh, anybody wants to send us checks, we're quite happy to cash I them. I mean, we wouldn't object if they nope. give us ten percent of the. No, nope, they can give budget. us. They are welcome to give us ten percent, but they have never done anything close to that. Uh, but you're quite right. We should say that we also, of course, have received Exxon money. Uh, although, in fact, that was cut off a decade ago. Um, even though that isn't uh, a fact often uh, often mentioned. In fact, uh, amusingly, the the Exxon CEO who cut us off. People may have heard of him. Uh, that would be Mr. Tillerson, uh, who now serves He's in Secretary Trump, of State, <laughs> Secretary of State for President Trump. Uh, but um, the we mentioned, uh, I mentioned at the very beginning of the show that the uh, left-wing uh, groups that Soros funds are C3. Uh, we, we mentioned that that they are active in voter registration, and this is something that's worth making a distinction between the left and right side of the influence spectrum. Uh, on the right-hand side, it is incredibly rare. In fact, I have never even been able to find an instance where one of the major donors, uh, at least institutional donors, like the Bradley Foundation, the Scaife Foundation, and whatnot, uh, where any of those have given monies to 501c3 activist groups to register voters, uh, much less to do get out the vote. Now, uh, in current law, it is possible for such C3s to do voter registration and to even to bus people to the polls, provided it is nonpartisan. Uh, the air quotes are the operative. Uh, the it is uh, you may ostensibly register voters using a 501c3 in a nonpartisan manner. However, given the advancements in big data, groups like on the left, uh, most prominently Catalyst. Uh, which is a Democracy Alliance-associated data firm, uh, which we will probably get to in one of our future episodes. Um, given the the kind of granularity of data, the reasonability with which you can predict that any given voter that you register or any re region that you're going to register voters in is going to lean one way or the other, you know, nonpartisan voter registration, I'm sorry, is a legal fiction. <laughs> Yes, per personally, I wouldn't mind if Congress simply changed the law and said no C three registration or get out the vote. But I want to I want to add that uh, speaking of CRC's own connection to these things, uh, we show up in a uh, WikiLeaks memo uh, that appeared uh, when the the Podesta and Soros um, emails came out, and that was a memo in the lead up to the 2016 election. Uh, the memo was to George Soros himself and also to the board of his largest foundation. Uh, the memo was authored by Deepak Bhargava, one of the most prominent community organizers, quote-unquote, um, in America, and also Andy Stern, who then was the leader of the SEIU union and also, at that time, the most frequent visitor. Uh, so this is the lead to, up to 2012. Sorry, to 2012. I, I misspoke. 2012. Sorry. Uh, it's uh, the re-election of Obama. Um, yes. Sorry. And uh, the, uh, the memo by the uh, community organizer and the union leader and most frequent visitor to the Obama White House in his first term, when this all uh, was happening, 
the memo to the board and Soros was very simple. It had three points. The first point was, uh, we must win the 2012 elections no matter what. Now, that's interesting given that uh, foundation boards are theoretically not really supposed to be trying to decide who's going to win the next presidential election, but there you are. Uh, that was the first thing. We must win the election or everything is lost. All of our money giving to everybody is meaningless. Uh, so the second point was the only way to achieve point one, the only way to win this 2012 election, uh, is to have millions and millions of dollars given to our 501c3 activist groups to register voters and uh, and do get out the vote. Uh, and it made the point that the Ford Foundation, as I said, Ford and Soros philanthropies work pretty much hand in hand. Um, they had already committed uh, eight figures in grants for that cycle uh, to do registration and get out the vote, and we must repeat our similar many millions of dollars into our network or all is lost. And the third point, a uh, final point of the memo was uh, they admitted, you know, we do this every cycle, we do this over and over, and we know you get really tired of pouring millions upon millions of dollars into voter registration and get out the vote. So our long-term strategy for obviating the need for these millions into voter registration and GOTV is, uh, quote unquote, electoral reform, uh, by which they meant things like having the Brennan Center uh, do its best and, and similar legal groups on the left do their best to destroy all voter ID laws and anything else that in any way uh, uh, encouraged what their opponents would call voter integrity um, or, uh, or, or anti-vote fraud efforts. Also, universal registration of all persons, so you'd have to opt out of being registered to vote. And also, uh, quote-unquote, reforms like expanding uh, early voting considerably, expanding same-day registration, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, as I said, their opponents would, I believe, characterize this as making it easier uh, to, to defraud elections. But anyway, that's, uh, that was a fascinating thing. We are quoted at the beginning of the memo uh, because one of our uh, researchers, Matthew Vadim, had once suggested that it was perhaps not a wonderful thing to have voter registration uh, in the same at the, done at the same time as the handing out of, of welfare checks. Well, I, I want to get to, speaking of the Democracy Alliance, um, as we had earlier, we should mention that Soros is by no means the only donor here. He was one of the original founders, but there are lots of other donors uh, active. Uh, oh, yeah, many. Uh, Stephen M. Silberstein, uh, David Desjardins. The Bronfman family, Canadian uh, tycoons. Uh, on the smaller side, Patricia Bauman of the Bauman Foundation, who may well figure in a future broadcast of ours because she's a, a little-known but highly important and influential uh, donor. You also have you also have institutional organizations like the AFL-CIO, the American Federation of Teachers, the National Education Association. Yep, it's worth mentioning on that score that in fact the leadership now of Democracy Alliance is uh, is mainly unions and union members like that, powerful unions like that. So as we keep saying on the show here. Uh, unions are incredibly important, um, and, and uh, I'm sure not all members of the Democracy Alliance may be pleased that, to see unions arguably uh, taking over the alliance to a significant degree. Um, oh, one other thing we should make a point. One of the co original co-founders was Peter Lewis, uh, since deceased, who was uh, made his money with progressive insurance. He actually had a falling out a few years after the founding uh, of Democracy Alliance because uh, Rob Stein, who was a Democratic operative whose 
research helped to inspire uh, the creation of the Democracy Alliance. Uh, his argument was that, uh, you know, remember the alliance is set up after the 2004 re-election of George W. Bush, which Soros himself spent tens of millions of dollars in pure political giving to try to stop and failed, obviously. Uh, the left and the big donors like that were very bitter that the Democratic Party was not getting the job done uh, in their in their uh, idea. And Rob Stein had a PowerPoint presentation shown to these donors arguing, look, we're losing to the conservatives and the Republicans because they have been investing in this 501c3 infrastructure of think tanks uh, and advocacy groups um, of that type. And that originally was what the Democracy Alliance was supposed to do, build up that, that infrastructure. And then uh, over time, though, it tended to become more political and obviously now even more unionized, and Lewis uh, left them for that score. So uh, why don't you mention a couple of the more recent big-name donors that we haven't gotten to, like uh, our a certain environmentalist friend and a casino operator. So to tie, kind of tie all this together, uh, the, the great, one of the great questions is whether it's going to be more effective over the long run to build an electoral machine sort of independent of the party. And as you, and as you, you hinted, uh, you know, the Charles and David Koch are by far not the only people to do this. Uh, the two other big names, one on the left, one on the right. On the left, it's Tom Steyer, uh, radical environmentalist, now trying to gather signatures to uh, remove President Trump from office. Uh, and then on the other side, Sheldon Adelson, who runs Las Vegas Sands uh, Casino Empire, who has given you know nine figures to uh, Republican super PACs, Republican candidates. Uh, Steyer, the, the, the liberal, uh, was the largest giver to, uh, according to Open Secrets, was the largest giver to political committees in 2016, and he lost. He was the largest giver to two political committees in 2014, and he lost. And Adelson was the biggest giver to political committees in 2012, and he lost. Um, so that is an, inter- an interesting, you know, semi-refutation of those who say that, you know, having a rich guy means you can buy elections. Um, but then the, the real question is whether that sort of, of activism will prove more lasting than the kind of activism that Soros, that other, again, unfortunately, it's mostly on the left, you know, Warren Buffett, who's given, you know, tens of millions of dollars to support abortion rights, Bill Gates, who spent tens of million dollars supporting population control and supporting certain controversial education reforms, whether that sort of activity is going to have a greater impact uh, than the sort of direct electoral intervention. Yeah. Well, this uh, this November we'll get a big uh, a big chance to see uh, the most immediate results of such strategies. Uh, that is our show for this week. If you're listening to us on iTunes or Stitcher, please know that we broadcast a live video version of this podcast at 10 a.m. on Thursdays on Facebook Live and on YouTube. You can find our pages by searching for Capital Research Center. And if you're watching the video version, we encourage you to subscribe to the audio on your preferred podcast platform. We'll see you next week.